This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. This hour, Janet Mefford Today, brought to you by Bible League. We are so thankful to all of you who have been joining in this great campaign to send Bibles, 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. I know this is a tough time for a lot of people, but it's $5 to send one Bible. We want to get 1,200 Bibles to the church around the world that's desperately in need of a copy of God's Word, and we are about a third of the way there, and it's because of you. We can't thank you enough. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles if you can give a $100 gift. That will send 20 Bibles in the language of new Christians in parts of Asia, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and Latin America. Here's the toll-free number to call if you'd like to join us. It's 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-937-9673. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for getting God's Word into the hands of Christians who are desperate to get it. We really, really appreciate it. One more time, it's 800-YES-WORD. Let's dive into some of the news. I want to talk a little bit about Virginia today. Did you hear what good old Governor Northam has done? Well, according to CNS News, he has issued an executive order that is aimed at stopping the new coronavirus and in the process makes it a criminal offense to hold a church service attended by more than 10 people. A criminal offense. Yes, his order makes it a crime for more than 10 people to gather in a church. And they get into some of the passages in the text of the executive order. And in this order, he declared that it's a misdemeanor. It's a class one misdemeanor now to gather. Now, on the one hand, you say to yourself, and, and this is my position because I've said this from the beginning, I think it is important for us to be wise at this time. I think that this is a temporary situation. We need to do what is best for what is going on in society right now. None of us want to get sick with a coronavirus. I don't think any of us want anybody else to get sick with a coronavirus. This is a very contagious disease. I'm going to be chatting with Dr. David Stevens here in a couple of minutes from the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. He's going to get into all that. And I do think we need to act wisely. What I'm a little concerned about, though, is a potential precedent setting here that in a time of emergency, And that is defined, I guess, you know, in in this time of emergency, it's legitimate. But if you can shut down churches in a time of emergency, what kind of potential precedent would that set for somebody else to exploit at some point? There's so many difficulties. There's so many difficulties constitutionally, legally. You have what's going on with the Nevada governor who has now said that inpatient doctors can use the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin combo to treat very seriously ill COVID. 19 patients, but you can't 
can't prescribe it because we don't want any hoarding and we don't want people to not be able to get it if they use COVID-19 for other purposes. And then you have to say, well, was that legitimate? Is it legitimate? Maybe it is. What about the gathering? Even the gathering orders themselves, is it okay for them to do that? Is this constitutional for the government to tell you you can't gather? Lots and lots of things are going on simultaneously, but I find this one to be very disturbing. And I'll tell you something else that's really relevant to this situation. They point out in the same story, the same executive order that creates this church attending crime also declares that Virginia's state-owned liquor stores, that's right, liquor stores, are essential retail businesses that may remain open during their normal business hours. Liquor is essential. Really? Liquor is essential? See, that's the problem. So Ralph Northam and his gang of leftists can decide what's essential. He doesn't have any problem with death when it comes to babies who are unfortunate enough to have survived an abortion. We already know where Governor Northam comes down on that. So that's fine for those babies to die. I mean, come on. It's, you know, it's the mother's choice. Just let the baby die. But in the interest of keeping people alive who might contract coronavirus, we have to shut down the churches. Just a disturbing development to keep an eye on. Now, something else that's happening in Virginia, in Lynchburg, Virginia, is some of the controversy that has been generated by Liberty University. Now, this is an interesting story. As I said, I do think it's important for us all to watch ourselves and to keep ourselves safe and to not get into a situation where you might be inadvertently spreading a highly contagious, deadly disease. But on the other hand, we have certain situations at colleges where you have kids who have nowhere else to go. Now, this is creating this particular controversy at Liberty University. I want to play a little bit of this report from WDBJ7. Listen to cut one. At Liberty University, the dorms and dining halls are open. Students returning to campus from across the country and world. We've become an apartment complex. <laughs> that's, how, that's, how, that's how we are. We're not operating as a school. Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. telling WDBJ7 the school is ready and has taken proper precautions. Most classes have been moved online gatherings of more than 10 are banned and while restaurants and dining halls are open, all meals are carry out. Uh, we're abiding by all the governor's orders. Falwell's claim is backed up by a surprise inspection Tuesday by the Central Virginia Health District. Two environmental health specialists did not observe any violations in open areas and food establishments across campus. Okay, so there's the controversy right there. The fact that Liberty University is allowing a small number of students to stay on campus. And as that report just indicated, the Central Virginia Health District did an inspection of Liberty and found no violations of anything. The governor's orders are being followed. As you heard, meals are takeout only and you don't have classes meeting in person. You don't have any gatherings of more than 10 people. So they're following all of the state orders. They're doing the Romans 13 thing and they're still under fire. Listen to the second part of this report. This is cut to. But some students say they still don't feel safe. I don't think he's doing what all needs to be done. I don't think anybody should be allowed back on campus. Alexis Valley is a freshman from the Lynchburg area. She worries the university's decision to keep the campus open will expose faculty, students, and the community to unnecessary risk. Because the students don't just stay on campus when they're there. They go off campus. Valley isn't the only one with concerns. Lynchburg's mayor, Trené Tweedy, issued a statement Monday calling the university's decision to keep its campus open reckless. In her statement, Tweedy said she 
is very concerned for the residents of the Lynchburg community. Falwell has pushed back. I don't know why everybody's making such a big deal of it. Every college has some students living on campus because there's international students who can't go home. There's uh, students who real there's some students who really have nowhere else to live. Alexis Valley says she's now staying home out of concern for her family and community. Despite the fact that students are already returning, she thinks it's not too late for the university to change its mind. There's not really much they can do, I don't think, um, other than making the students that can go home, go home. May I make a remark here about this particular piece of journalism, if that's what you want to call it, just from a journalist perspective, externalist perspective on all this. This is such a sloppy story. If you are overlooking what Falwell's point is, which I think is valid, then you're not really telling the story. What you're trying to do is you're trying to whip stuff up to create a story that perhaps doesn't exist. Because I think that Jerry Falwell Jr. makes a good point. When he's saying every college has some students on campus, is that not true? I mean, Clearly, there are students at certain campuses who are international students and they can't go home. So what do you do with them? Throw them out on the street? Tell them they can't come? He even said at the beginning of that report, they're operating what amounts to an apartment complex, not a school. The classes are online. It's takeout meals only. You can't gather in more than groups of 10. And you have the sign off of the Central Virginia Health District on everything they're doing. So you interview one freshman who feels like it's not good. And that's your story. And and the mayor didn't like it. Why does that matter? Why didn't you interview any of the students who are staying on campus and find out why are you here and what is your daily life like? You have this one freshman student who's not there, who doesn't feel like this is a good idea, who is extrapolating, well, you know, these students, they don't stay on campus, they go off campus. How do you know they're going off campus? Maybe they're staying put. This is just such bad journalism. You don't have anybody being interviewed who's actually on campus, who actually would have a hardship if they weren't allowed to be there. I actually don't have a problem with that. If that's where they have to stay and they're sheltered and they're staying inside their rooms and they're really staying away and doing the social distancing thing, then what is wrong with that? If they were openly conducting classes like there was no problem with thousands and thousands of students, then you might be able to say, hey, wait a minute, that's not the smartest thing. That's not what happened here. But again, this is why every media report that you get, you got to check it out. There's a lot more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT.
If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20, and a limited time Bible for Bible match will help us meet our goal of sending the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Should a university be allowed to force a Christian professor to use the wrong pronoun for a gender-confused student? Of course not. But this is the issue at the center of a legal battle involving Dr. Nick Merriweather from Shawnee State University. His attorneys at Alliance Defending Freedom recently filed an appeal of a federal judge's decision to dismiss Dr. Merriweather's lawsuit against the school. And we're going to find out more now about this from Dr. Merriweather and Tyson Langhofer, who is senior counsel and director of the Center for Academic Freedom with Alliance. Alliance Defending Freedom. Welcome to you both. Great to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, let me start with you, Dr. Merriweather, if I could. I understand this all started when you addressed a male student who believed he was a woman as sir, which is just absurd to me. But can you tell us how this whole situation unfolded for you? Sure. Uh, Let me just say that in terms of the big picture, I'm being required to endorse an ideology I don't agree with. I think that's the most important thing to bear in mind. Right. And this ideology violates my First Amendment rights and my academic freedom. So I don't, I don't think this is about pronouns and titles so much as about my being compelled to endorse an ideology I don't hold. Right. But more to what happened, uh, it was the first day of a political philosophy class, and as you said, a male student raised his hand. And I responded with, yes, sir, and that is my usual practice, because I like to encourage an atmosphere of polite formality with the students. I cover a lot of very controversial material, so I need that. Well, the student approached me after class and demanded I refer to him as female. And when I said I couldn't do that, he became irate. He circled me in a threatening manner. He used profanity, and he threatened to get me fired, and eventually then filed a complaint with the administration. Now, from that point on, I addressed the student by his chosen name. I did not use pronouns with him, and there were no further incidents. Uh, We got along fine. He did well in the class. But the university is punishing me. I've been at the university for 20-plus years. I have an absolutely sterling record, I think. And I proposed a middle ground, which was only to use the student's proper names, but this was unacceptable because I'm being required to endorse the ideology. That's so, crazy. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It sounds like you have a question. Yeah. No, I was going to say, did they have the, any policy in place at your university that spoke to this issue that if a professor encountered a situation where a student wanted to be addressed a certain way, that the professor has to address the student that way? Or was this just the university saying, we don't like the way that you're handling this and you better do what the student wants? I, I'm going to let 
uh, Tyson handled that, but I would say absolutely it's the latter. It was not explicit at the time, or at least in my understanding it was not. Tyson, do you want to add something to that? Sure. They they did not have a direct policy on this. They had a general non-discrimination policy, which they interpreted, uh, we think wrongly, to um, pro, to prohibit the the um, or to force Dr. Merriweather to use these pronouns. And so there was not a specific ideology or, or uh, there was not a specific policy um, setting forth a, a pronoun type um a procedure. Right. So, but, you know, it's interesting because if the university was claiming, Dr. Merriweather, that you created a hostile environment, it would seem to me that a student swearing at a teacher and threatening him would create more of a hostile environment than calling somebody <laughs> sir. Well, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I would tend to agree with you. Yes. That's crazy. So what happened from there, Tyson? I know that there was a, a suit filed against the school. What happened from there? What happened with this judge who made this bad decision? Sure. So we filed a lawsuit and, and the university um, filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. And they basically argued that what they did didn't violate any law. Even if everything that Dr. Merriweather alleged was true, they said they didn't do anything wrong. Um, and unfortunately, the, the, the court agreed and the court dismissed Dr. Merriweather's uh, complaint. Um, you know, the, uh, and, and the complaint basically says that the First Amendment forbids public universities from requiring teachers to um, to express messages that they disagree with, and and that's just that's just a basic black letter First Amendment law. I mean, public universities shouldn't require teachers to abandon their beliefs, especially especially when we're talking about public universities, which are spent, meant to be the marketplace of ideas. Um, and so, after the district court dismissed the lawsuit, we have appealed that nod to the Sixth Circuit, and that's where the case is at now. Right. So, so when you're talking about the university claiming it violated no particular law, we have a Bill of Rights. I mean, are they trying to say that the First Amendment is not relevant here? Yeah, that's that's an amazing thing. Here's what the they actually argued that Dr. Merriweather's speech is not protected speech, and the court agreed with them, and the court actually um, held that Dr. Merriweather's speech was not protected speech by the First Amendment. And essentially what that means, if you carry this to the logical conclusion, that means that public universities can force professors to say whatever they want, to essentially kind of read from a script, because we're talking about de- uh, determining exactly the types of word, every word you will use in your interaction with a student. That's what the public uh, university here is saying they have the right to do. And, and that's contrary to the First Amendment. And frankly, it's contrary to the purpose of a university, which is supposed to be a marketplace of ideas. I mean, students are able to express their views. All Professor Merriweather is asking for is the same freedom. Well, of course. So, Dr. Merriweather, out of curiosity, after the university came down on you, how did things go from that point where they were warning you, I guess, that they would uh, commit further corrective actions against you if you didn't use the pronouns they wanted you to use? How did that kind of shake down between the time that you were dealing with all this to the time when you decided that you needed to file the lawsuit in the first place? Well, having having a disciplinary action... uh, applied to you is, is very serious. Uh, you basically have a cloud over your head, a black cloud over your head. And so you never really know what is going to happen from one day to the next. I could be fired. I could be fired. Um, of course, you know, the campus is, is shut down like all the other campuses in Ohio. 
but from one one day to the next, you you don't actually know uh, you know what's going to happen. If I decided I wanted to move to a different university, this would be a very serious thing to have in my record. Right. So even though I'm teaching my classes, it's not as if there are no um, there are no um, problems with what's going on. I mean, it's a difficult situation to be in. Well, I can imagine. I it, Tyson, I'm curious because when you're talking, and to both of you really, when you're talking about finding a compromise, all right, I'm not comfortable calling a, a, a male student she, and I'm not comfortable calling a female student he, and that's just common sense. But to say that you would forge this compromise, Dr. Merriweather, and say, I will call the student by the student's preferred name, why is it that they would still look upon that as being something unacceptable? It seems to me that that's just a reasonable compromise. I'm not really in a position to speculate why. I do think, I mean, exactly what went on in the minds of the administrators who made that call. But I, I, I think it's rather obvious that they have, in, they are, have embraced this ideology and they wish to impose it on the faculty, that this, there is an agenda behind this. And I think that that, as as Tyson was saying, that goes directly against the purpose of the state university. It's supposed to be a marketplace of ideas, yes. where everyone is encouraged to have to express their views. The students certainly are. I, I don't want my students in my classes to to think that they have to, you know, uh, toe the party line. But rather than being a marketplace of ideas, the university. Uh, is an assembly line for one type of thought. And I find that very, very unfortunate, very troubling. Well, right. I Well, the other thing is I'm going, I keep going back to the way that this student treated you. I mean, maybe I'm a dinosaur here, but if I would have spoken to any teacher I ever had in the way that this person spoke to you, that person would have been thrown out of class, not rewarded with some kind of, you know, draconian action against the teacher. I mean, does that speak to a bigger problem in academia, in your opinion? You know, honestly, that is extremely rare. I find that the students in my classes are have been very polite, very civil, very respectful. That I've never seen anything like that in the twenty plus years that I've been in Shawnee State. Yeah, it really caught me by surprise. Wow, that's uh, really unfortunate. And and uh, but you know, I have all kinds of students in my classes: gay, straight, Christian, atheist, relativist, realist. Uh, Catholic, Protestant, and um, I try to treat them all with respect, and I think that they treat me with respect in return, and so I'm just asking for the same respect and the same freedom that this particular student received from me, but evidently the administration says, no, you're going to have to uh, you know, toe this particular party line and do what the student is demanding that you do. Boy, well, Tyson, let me ask you from a legal perspective. Now that you are appealing, what went on here? When you're talking about the First Amendment right for a professor to be able to live out his faith and not have to subscribe to an ideology with which he strongly disagrees, which I think is important for lots and lots of people across this country who agree with you, Dr. Merriweather, what is the legal argument here that you're putting forward going into this appeals process? Yeah, so we're just, we're just uh, you know, arguing that the First Amendment protects public universities' prof- professors um, the right to speak to not be forced to speak messages they disagree with. Dr. Merriweather taught the uh, curriculum that was required of that course. There was no allegation that he didn't teach that curriculum. All we're talking about here is that the university saying, not only will you teach the curriculum, but you will also speak messages 
that don't have to do with the curriculum that you disagree with. And that that's the problem that we're running into. And so what we're arguing is that the public universities uh, that, that should shouldn't be allowed to force uh, professors to have that ideology. And, and that applies both to freedom of speech, but also to the free exercise of religion, because obviously this implicates both for Dr. Merriweather, although it would protect, uh, you know, an atheist professor who also doesn't want to speak messages that he disagrees with. So we think this is an important principle that applies not only in this situation, but but for all professors everywhere and for academia in general, that that, you know, the government shouldn't be able to force people to say things that they disagree with. Well, it makes total sense. And I'm really glad that you're fighting this because, as I mentioned before, you're fighting for a lot more people than just Dr. Merriweather. But ADFlegal.org, thank you so much to Dr. Nick Merriweather and Tyson Langhofer from ADF. Appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The FDA has now cleared the way for physicians to use blood plasma on COVID-19 patients, which would come from those who've recovered from the coronavirus. And already, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is saying that plasma would be tested in his state, which is at the epicenter of the U.S. pandemic, to treat the sickest COVID-19 patients. But I know there are a lot of remaining medical questions that we all have about this coronavirus, along with further questions concerning the promise of certain medicines to treat it and the potential for a vaccine. So we're going to talk about it all today with Dr. David Stevens, who is CEO Emeritus of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. So glad to have you with us, Dr. Stevens. How are you? I'm doing fine, Janet. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. So help us, if you would, to understand the basics about COVID-19. What exactly, I've heard this asked by a lot of people recently, what exactly is a coronavirus, medically speaking, and what makes this particular strain so dangerous and so contagious? Coronavirus has been around for a long time and causes common colds, but we've had some, for want of a better word, novel viruses over the last 20 years that have come from animals to humans. And because they originated in animals, they we did not have immunity to fight these viruses. The first one of these was SARS, uh, South Asian Respiratory Syndrome, which started in China and came from civet cats. Then MERS, which was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, that came from camels. Both of those uh, had great concerns when they happened, but they didn't spread very far. They stayed pretty regionally. Uh, This virus, coronavirus, uh, adds to that the fact that it is very transmissible. Uh, It's very contagious, and that's why we're seeing it just spreading around the world like wildfire. We're not sure what animal it came from. Uh, Originally, it came from bats. We know that because it's in a group that all came from bats, but this one uh, had some other intermediate host in China. People have said snakes because they eat snakes in China. Other things have been guessed at, but and so that's made it very dangerous for us because our immune systems are uh, has not seen this virus before, 
and uh, and it's very deadly, especially for people that have other chronic diseases or are being immunosuppressed for cancer therapy or other types of therapy. Exactly. So you have a lot of people, for example, talking about how many people got the flu or how many people got the swine flu. And it was millions and millions of people. There were more deaths in terms of real numbers. We're not seeing those kinds of numbers of deaths at this juncture. But what about the difference between flu, which had an estimated 22,000 people die in the last flu season, versus coronavirus? A lot of people are saying, why are we all under quarantine when there were a lot more deaths that came from the seasonal flu? How would you respond to that? I respond by saying that you've seen flu virus before. In fact, you see it every year. People have vaccines. Now, flu virus changes some every year, and that's why we have to be revaccinated. But you get a novel flu, and it'd be as bad as coronavirus. My grandfather was back in 1918 when we had the so-called Spanish flu. He lost his brother and sisters. Millions around the world died from that. So we have built up immunity against the flu virus uh, to some extent, and mainly the elderly and those that are sick in some other way die of flu. This coronavirus has got a blank slate. It can attack everybody at every age. Seems to spare a little bit younger people. uh, children and teenagers, uh, it still can be uh, deadly for them. So, uh, yeah, it's it's not as deadly when you get it, but it's more deadly because everybody's going to get it. And that's the concern unless we get this thing stopped. Wow. So would you really say then, as these people have been claiming, that everybody will eventually get coronavirus, but the range of symptoms can very much vary between people? They can. About 80% of people, it's, it's uh, a cold or a bad case of the flu. About 20%, one out of five, it's more serious. And now what we're seeing in the United States is a better mortality rate than they had even in China. It was about 2.5% there. Uh, so far, it's been about 1.5% here. Uh, but this is very contagious. That's why we're seeing numbers. I'm based here in Tennessee. A week ago, last Friday, there were nine cases in the states. And it's just been doubling and doubling. We're up over 1,000 now. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the old adage, would you rather me give you $10,000 or two cents? And it doubles every day. <laughs> well, if I got two cents and it doubled every day for a month, I'd have a billion dollars. Wow. Well, that's interesting. So that's the exponential increase in coronavirus where you got to get it wide, little, I mean, wide, few numbers and a little epidemic before it just becomes huge. Yes, exactly. Well, what about the quarantine and what's been put in place? We're seeing some people who are very concerned about the quarantine being potential overkill, other people who say it's not strong enough. How do you come down on it from the medical side? I think we're uh, about where we need to be. I mean, and, and it's varied across the U.S. and how strict it has been. I mean, some governors have shut down their states completely, New York, uh, Michigan, other places where they were seeing rapid rises. Other states uh, have not had as much uh, coronavirus, and, you know, it's uh, yeah, shut the schools and, you know, isolate yourself at home as much as possible. Uh, so, you know, the, the trouble with this is it has a huge economic impact, and you're always kind of balancing those two. How long, for how much, can we whip it now? Uh, and we got to a point where it had to be more vigorous or uh, this was going to be totally out of control, and, you know, you'd, uh, the chances of getting it would just skyrocket because so many people would be carrying it around. Well, right. Now, for those who would say, but most of us won't die of it, if you look at the global numbers, most people who get it do recover from it. Is it worthwhile to shut down the economy the way it's been going in order to protect the lives if that fatality rate stays about the same as you've already mentioned? 
Yeah. Well, what what the, there, there's called the initiation period of a virus, and then there's the acceleration. We're mainly in the acceleration phase now in most places in the U.S., and what happens then is you're concerned it's going to accelerate so fast that you overwhelm your medical system. Yeah. And that's what's happening in New York State right now. If you've been listening to what's going on up there, they're talking about they need 140,000 respirators for the number of people they're going to end up on a respirator from this. They don't have near that. They've got about 20,000. They don't even know where they can get that many. So the time to jump into it is before you get to the place where you've overwhelmed your medical system. They're asking physicians, nurses who've retired to come back, those that are in administrative medicine to start practicing medicine again, Mm. trying to contain this and treat the people that are so sick, desperately sick in New York State. And obviously, we don't want that to happen all across the country. And we definitely need to be praying for these people because they're in a very uh, difficult situation there. Absolutely. Well, we've seen some of the production of some of these medical supplies on the increase. What is your sense or what is the information that you have on whether or not this stepped up production will be able to meet the demand? And what's the timeline on that? Do we have any sense of that situation? Yeah, it's it's really exploding right now as far as supplies. Um, you know, testing has markedly increased, and there were some false starts there. One of the companies that had developed uh, a test didn't work well initially, and so those type of things are pumping up, and people are learning other strategies. They're, uh, you know, making cloth masks for doctors and nurses because they couldn't didn't have enough paper ones. Well, the thing with cloth masks is you can wash them and reuse them, sterilize them and reuse them. I was a missionary doctor for 11 years in Africa. We always use cloth masks because we couldn't afford to pay for paper ones, so it's kind of retro as far as uh, people here look at it, but it was every day for us there, and it works, and it provides the protection that people need. So people are working hard to get around these issues and the supply is really ramping up and uh, we're catching up and that's encouraging. Well, it is. How do you view this issue of the economy tanking versus this exponential potential you know, explosion of cases of coronavirus and how to mitigate that? Obviously, the president is in a very difficult situation trying to balance everybody's interests. What do you think is the wisest course of action right now? I think we've I think we've handled it. He he handled it early and and uh, you know made decisions that mo- many people criticize. You know, not letting people in from China and all the rest of them. Looking back, that was right on. Yeah. Are we being a lot worse shape than we are? And where we are now, I you know what he was saying uh, just in the last couple of days, the fact that we're going to uh, try to open up the economy within two weeks. It's a balancing act. I mean, you know, you you miss it too far one way and you destroy the economy. You miss it too far the other way and you kill a lot of people and destroy the economy so uh, you have to err on the side of caution and uh, but as quickly as possible and as reasonably try to back open up the economy and let people get back to work well very very good there's a lot more to talk about including some of these potential medical treatments and maybe a vaccine for this coronavirus we'll come back with dr david stevens ceo emeritus of the christian medical and dental association stay with us on janet meffer today Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center, 
under pressure to abort her child. Perhaps the dad's gone. Perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort. But what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. We are talking about COVID-19. What do we need to know from a medical perspective, some of these social realities and political realities that are coming down all over our society right now? It's a lot to take in, but we're getting some really good information today from Dr. David Stevens, who is CEO Emeritus of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Dr. Stevens, we were talking a little bit about COVID-19 and why it's so dangerous, why it's so contagious. I'm curious for your thoughts on some of these medicinal um, advancements, I would say, if, if you want to call it that, the blood plasma treatment that has now been approved by the FDA for COVID-19 patients, the potential for this hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin treatment. How do you take in all of these potentials for, you know, dealing with COVID-19 across the United States and the world? Yeah, well, we're in a desperate situation with people that are seriously ill when there's no treatment. And so people are looking instead of at new drugs, uh, which take a long time to develop and test, at drugs that have been around for a while and uh, have, uh, we know the side effects, we know their effectiveness in other diseases to see if they may uh, have some effect. Chloroquine is one of those. I have a tremendous amount of experience with chloroquine because, as I mentioned, I was in Africa as a missionary for 11 years, and that was one of the primary treatments for malaria, especially back in the 80s when I was there. And chloroquine's got, uh, you know, some risk involved, but they're relatively uh, non-significant. People with heart disease can get arrhythmias and stuff, and you have to watch out for that. But chloroquine, along with azithromycin, the Z-Pak, which people often get when they have upper respiratory tract infections, in a small study showed it had a tremendous effect in decreasing uh, the viral load. They can measure the number of virus particles people have in their in their serum or their blood, and, and uh, it just knocked it down to zero. So when you're desperate and people are desperately sick, 
uh, you go and do off-label use. In other words, it hasn't been tested. It's a drug we know, but it hasn't been tested in, a, in the research we normally do. But in a desperate situation, you reach out and, and use those drugs. Doctors do that all the time. They use medications that are off-label for things the FDA had approved when they have experience or others have had experience to show that they might work. So I think that has uh, tremendous potential, and doctors are doing that here in the U.S. We'll learn more about it really fast because one of the things in finding out whether drugs work is you have to have enough people sick to see if they work. We've got plenty of people that are ill that we can see what the effect of this is. Plasma is a little bit more uh, complicated, um, but essentially what you're doing is giving the patient antibodies from a patient who already has had coronavirus. And so they built up antibodies, defeated it. So let's take some blood, take the plasma off, make sure uh, that it's safe, and, uh, and then give it to the patient. That's more labor-intensive and takes a lot more steps, uh, but it's worth doing it, especially in people that are desperately ill and, uh, and having uh, significant difficulty and may die without this. Right. So we need to do whatever we can. Like you said, it takes a long time to approve new drugs. So why not take advantage of some of the drugs that are already there in in terms of the chloroquine? What do you make of what the Nevada governor did? Governor Sisolak had signed this emergency regulation limiting the prescription and issuance of those two drugs, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, that have as he said, unproven results with treating COVID-19. Now, he said it doesn't prohibit prescription of the drugs for inpatient treatment, but he's concerned about the problem of hoarding. You have other patients with um, diseases like scleroderma who use it regularly. There's a concern that they won't be able to get the drugs they need for chronic illnesses. But on the other hand, if that would help people from dying, is that a good thing for a governor to do? How do you feel about that? Well, if if they're limiting it to the people that are significantly sick, I mean, if he he was limiting it to everybody, I would have real problems because I don't ask him where he got his medical degree right. uh, to, to make that kind of decision. But there there uh, there is concern that people might hoard this in case they get sick. I had that happen in my own family. My son contacted me; his wife's pregnant, she's at higher risk. Dad, could you write me a prescription for hydroxychloroquine? I said. No. (laughs) I said, I can't do that. If she gets sick, I'll make sure she gets some. But you having a prescription of the drug in your house deprives somebody who might desperately need it until we ramp up production. And so, um, you know, and he said, yeah, you're right, Dad. I hadn't thought about that. So I I see that point of it. Uh, I don't think people should have chloroquine in their house just in case. Uh, We don't have enough chloroquine to do that. We need to make sure it gets to the people that need it the most. And physicians are the ones to make that decision, nurse practitioners, PAs, and others that diagnose and treat regularly. Yeah, right. What about the possibility of a vaccine for this coronavirus? What is the timeline, potential timeline on that? I know that's another thing that doesn't happen. You know, you can't turn on a dime and come up with a new vaccine, but where does that stand? We are actually way ahead of the curve, and part of that is because of some of our new genetic technology. We actually were able to see the genome uh, of that virus uh, by late January. They've started phase one trials. Phase one trials means the vaccine has been given to a small group of people to see if it has bad side effects. If that is successful, and it won't take too long to know that, then you go to phase two where you actually give it to a larger group of people to see how effective it is. Is it preventing the infection? And then third is even stage is even a larger group. And so they fast track this. And we may have something by the end of the year. One bit of excellent news today 
I mentioned that with the flu, every year there has to be a new vaccine. Why? Because the flu vaccine changes its genome every year, and it looks a little bit different, sometimes significantly different, and the vaccine doesn't even work that we get because they have to make it months in advance. Today, a, uh, a story came out from one of the scientific journals that they've looked at this, and it doesn't look like this virus uh, genetically modifies itself like the flu does. That oh, means my. if we get a vaccine, it could last for a good number of years and maybe for good. Oh, that would be good news. That would be great. Well, the, all these things are so important as people are obviously working very hard and as quickly as they can to try to mitigate any additional fear or additional deaths, more importantly, or illnesses from COVID-19. What would you say, Dr. Stevens, would be your recommendation? I mean, just from a doctor's standpoint, how would you assess when it is appropriate to allow people to let up on the social distancing and open the schools and let even churches have more than 10 people per gathering? How do you decide whether or not it's safe to do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question and a very hard question because we've not experienced this virus before. Uh, they're going to want to see uh, a leveling off and a beginning of tre- decrease of cases. We have some experience out of China now. Wuhan, which was the center of this, is really getting back to business. And it's been a you know a falling number of people having it and uh, early diagnosis and, and treatment when they can do that. Uh, so I would think, uh, you know, three or four weeks from now, uh, the president said around Easter, he hopes, you know, we'll get the economy back up and going again. Uh, that's a guess, but it's a guess best based on your best estimates and the data that we have today. We'll just have to see how things go. But uh, the sooner we do it, the better. At the same time, we don't want to double bump. In other words, we don't want to have an epidemic get out of it too soon and another one starts with the same virus because we still had too many cases getting other people sick. Exactly. That's that's a really tough call, but you're right. We have to get it right. I'm curious, when I raised the issue of churches, in Virginia, you might have heard that the governor issued an executive order that said churches can't even gather. Every single private organization, every single public organization, you cannot gather with more than 10 people. And there's some Christians saying, oh, this is a violation of religious liberty. How do you think Christians ought to think about churches having to follow the law or executive orders like that during the times of a pandemic? Well, the Bible says very clearly we're supposed to follow government authorities unless it contradicts uh, the Bible. And, you know, First First Timothy 1.6 is a verse that's gotten me through multiple epidemics that I've been involved in overseas. And uh, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Amen. And this is a sound mind situation. Uh, it's reckless for people to meet. I preached two, a week and a half ago in my church. We had less than 50 people. We normally have 800 in each service. And everybody was sitting six feet apart. And they called it off this week. And that was wise. I watched it on the Internet. I mean, it's not like we cannot hear the message. Uh, and uh, you can't, don't have the fellowship, but you can still be encouraged and blessed. And so we need to love our neighbors. <laughs> the Bible yeah. tells us to do that. Yeah. And uh, getting in a situation where we can pass them on to other people. You may have heard about the situation up in Connecticut where somebody had a birthday party at the beginning of the month for 50 people, and half of them came down with this. Uh, yes. And one of the ladies went to South Africa and spread it there. So <sighs> this isn't idle speculation we need to do social distancing. That's the best therapy and the best vaccine that we have right now is not passing it on to other people. 
Well, I think that that's very good advice, Dr. Stevenson. It's based on the sound mind principle. I love that. I love that verse, and I'm glad that you brought that up. And it's important for people to really exercise good judgment right now as we continue to pray for our country and pray for the world that they will be able to get a handle on this pandemic and begin to see life returning to normal. Well, Dr. David Stevens, CEO Emeritus of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, so good to have you here. Thank you so much for enlightening us. We really appreciate all the great info. So good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us here on Janet Mefford Today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles, and today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 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 